Well, good morning again, brethren, and what a joy it is to be with you this morning. Thankful for our time together, and in God's timing and God's providence, we'll be gathered together soon. In the meantime, we will continue to live stream, and we praise God for the technology that allows us to do that. Uh, What a blessing it is, what a gift from God it is. We're coming to a new section of the book of James today. We're coming to chapter 3. Now, James has told us and challenged us in a large section of chapter 2, which we just went through, to live out our faith, to show that our faith is real by our works, by our good deeds. Well, James transitions here to chapter 3 by giving us what one of those good deeds actually is. And those actions, those works, those deeds that we do that demonstrate our faith is how we speak, how we use our tongue. And James confronts us, he confronts all believers with the chief inconsistency in our life and in our walks and with the Lord. And that inconsistency is how we use our tongue. You think about this little bit of flesh in our mouths tells us more about what's in our hearts than anything else. It tells people what you like and what you don't like, what you love, what you don't love, what you hate. The tongue reveals your heart. In fact, Jesus himself says in Luke 6.45, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, misuse of the tongue is also the easiest way for us to sin. There's no limits to the evil and perversion that can come out of the mouth. The tongue can gossip, it can criticize, slander, complain, flatter, deceive. It can be perverse, it can boast, it can be foolish and even blasphemous. But James is concerned, as a good pastor is, he's concerned about the speech of these believers. He knows that a changed heart will result in a changed life. True living faith will be demonstrated in the speech of each believer. Nowhere is your faith more demonstrated in what you say and how you say it. Nothing can damage and destroy relationships as quick and as effectively as the tongue. With the tongue, married couples hurt each other. With the tongue, friends become enemies. And with the tongue, nations even go to war. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat his fruits. Proverbs 13.3, The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 15, 4, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Psalm 39, 1, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. You see, every one of us has hurt others with our tongues. And every one of us has been hurt by others with their tongues. We are both perpetrators and victims of sin. And believers, 
James wants to challenge you today to control your tongue. Right? That's what I've titled the message, Controlling Your Tongue. But just know that you don't have to do this alone. Right? You have the instructions in the Word of God that teach us what God expects, but we also indwelt by the Holy Spirit who empowers us and strengthens us to, to say no to sin and to say yes to obeying God. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at how James is challenging these believers, how he's challenging you, how he's challenging me to demonstrate our faith, your faith, by controlling your tongue. James is going to show us the importance of the tongue, the influence of the tongue, the intractability of the tongue, and the inconsistency of the tongue. And we're going to be looking at James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this morning. And let's go ahead and look down at the text. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as we knowing that, excuse me, as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. Look at the great ships also. Though they are so great, they are driven by strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain... Send forth the same opening, both fresh and bitter water. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine tree produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So James begins this section on the tongue in verses 1 and 2 by giving us the importance of the tongue. And he starts out with a warning, and he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. It's a warning against selfish ambition. The temptation for believers is when you see someone in the spotlight, and you see someone up before others, is you want to be like that person. It's a great temptation. James wants to restrain that selfish ambition. He understands that God gives teachers, preachers. He gives those to the body of Christ. God chooses and God gifts. One of the things I've learned over the years is, is knowledge alone doesn't equal speaking ability. I've known plenty of believers that they, they have a great amount of biblical knowledge and, and tremendous amounts of Scripture memorized, but they're, they're not very good teachers, and they would readily admit that. That's not where God has gifted them, what, how God desires for them to serve the body. 
the speaking ability alone also doesn't mean that you have the knowledge. Just because you can speak well and you can communicate effectively doesn't mean that you have the necessary knowledge and skills of of handling the Word of God to be able to explain it rightly and divide the truth rightly to others. There's a balance. That's where the the church comes in. That's where as, as the elders of a church recognize in a young man, the, the ability to, to teach and preach. They give him opportunities and they help guide him. And they, they guide his life. They help him to be consistent. But to be able to communicate effectively. But, but James adds this caveat and he adds, well, this, this emphasis here. But he said, look, there's a stricter judgment And he says, you should know this, that if you teach and you preach the Word of God, and and you notice he says, we, and he includes himself. I include myself in this, that that we will undergo a stricter judgment by the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, we all as believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But for those of us that have been chosen, those of us that have engaged in teaching, there's a stricter judgment. We will stand before Christ after everyone else has been judged and there will be a more stringent standard. James wants those who are teachers to feel the full weight of knowing that every word that they say is going to be recorded and analyzed by God and and played back on that heavenly DVD player. We did what we say, honor Him. Was it self-seeking? Was it accurate to the Word of God? What a tremendous responsibility. It's said that John Knox, the famous Scottish preacher, The first time he got up to preach, he wept uncontrollably in the pulpit. He actually had to step down and go into another room and compose himself because he felt the full weight of what he was going to do to preach the Word of God and be held accountable before the Lord for what he was going to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, Paul speaks about the quality of a, of a preacher and a teacher's work being examined by God and whether it's wood, hay, or stubble, or whether it's actually worth something. And how God is the ultimate evaluator of those that, that preach and those that teach in the church. You see, what a tremendous responsibility God has given those in the church. And there's a tremendous amount of accountability God's going to examine not only the words, but the motives behind it. So know that those of you who desire to be preachers and teachers, and those of you that God has gifted to teach, that there is a stricter accountability. So James begins by saying that he wants to to restrain that selfish ambition. He doesn't want you to not desire to teach. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. It's what I've been called to do. It's what God has laid on my heart since I was in my early 20s. I love it. It's both a a joy and a weight on my shoulders. But James wants you to know that there's a stricter judgment as well. But he, he also continues 
And in verse 2, and he says, For we all stumble, and he includes himself, in many ways. And anyone does not stumble, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So James continues, in, and he broadens this out, not only to teachers, select group, but he broadens it to the church as well. And he said, look, we all stumble. James is acknowledging that he, even he himself is not perfectly sinless. There's no, no, no such thing as a, a perfectly sinless person in this life. There's only been one perfect man, and that's Jesus Christ. But he says everyone stumbles. It's a universal fact. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from sin. Ecclesiastes 7, 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 1 John 1, 8, If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, stumble here is a moral lapse. It's a failure to do one's duty. It's, it's metaphorically stumbling and falling along a path. You trip and you fall. It's not, a, it's not a fatal fall, but it's a stumble. It's a, it's a repeatedly, sorry, it repeatedly happens, but it arrests our progress in our walk with the Lord. And James is saying, look, we all stumble. And he means this specifically in matters relating to the tongue. We all at times say something in anger. We all at times say a word of gossip, slander. Maybe something that we shouldn't, an unwholesome word. We're all guilty of stumbling with our tongue. And so it gives extra weight to those who want to be teachers because those teachers aren't perfect. And they'll be held accountable for their words. And they stumble just like the rest of us. The idea is, though, as you grow in your walk with the Lord and you grow in your maturity, those stumbles become less frequent. Brethren, we must be honest that we all stumble in our words, and we stumble repeatedly. If you don't believe that, then ask your spouse. Ask those around you who really know you to give you examples. You see, we, we all have hardly a day where we don't stumble with our words, stumble with our tongue. And these words come from what's in the heart. They show those those thoughts, the position of our heart. But James says, look, it's a demonstration of spiritual maturity. He says, if anyone does not stumble repeatedly in what he says, he is a perfect man, a perfect person, able to bridle the whole body as well. But he says it's a sign of maturity. The mature Christian is someone who, who doesn't stumble that much, still stumbles. There's no longer the the repeated and continual failures in regard to the tongue. It's a test of Christian character. It's a proof of maturity. It's self-control. But see, he's not just talking about teaching. He's talking about speaking. He's talking about controlling your tongue, controlling your speech. Because the words come from the heart. And if you're able to, to control that part of your body as we'll find out, it's almost uncontrollable, then you've demonstrated that you practice self-control in your life. The perfect word here is, and we've used it, or James used it repeatedly, used it in in verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Sorry, verse 1 of chapter Verse uh, 4 of chapter 1. Let endurance have its perfect result. He's talking about completing the goal which it was intended so that you may be perfect, so that you may be mature. A person that is mature in their faith can practice self-control. And they can control their tongue. In other words, if you have controlled speech, you have a controlled life. Because the tongue is the hardest part of the body to actually control. It's the most difficult. The word there for bridle is, is many of you are familiar with. It's what you use in a horse or with a horse's mouth to control it. You direct a, a large animal with just a, a small set of accessories, a bridle goes around his mouth and his face and the harness, and you're able to control which direction that it goes in. Self-control, by the way, comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. You see, as we walk with the Lord and we submit to Jesus Christ, as we obey the Word of God, our mind is renewed and the Holy Spirit indwells, has indwelled us and, and fills us and directs our speech and our thoughts. And, and we're, we're bearing fruit. We're able to practice self-control. Apart from the Holy Spirit, the natural man is unable to control his tongue. As James says, we'll get into it in a minute, it's a fire, it's uncontrollable. Look, he's not telling you, and just to be clear, he's not telling you to stop speaking. He's not saying go be a monk and take a vow of silence. What he's asking for is the, the wise use of speech, knowing that the, the tongue can cause incredible damage. Controlling your tongue demonstrates a level of spiritual maturity. It's one thing you notice. If you've been in the church a while and you, you get a young believer, just, just come to the Lord in, into the, into the church, maybe their, their speech isn't as controlled as it will be down the road. They say things they, they shouldn't. And we bear with them, right? They, they have it, they, they've come out of a, of a, a pagan lifestyle. Maybe their, their speech is profane and they haven't learned to, to replace uh, those, those cursing words with other words that are more appropriate. Right? The controlling of the tongue shows a level of spiritual maturity. It reveals what's in your heart. Brethren, you can't hide from what's in your heart. It comes out through your speech comes out, shows your thoughts, your personality. James says it demonstrates spiritual maturity. But James also said, look, not only that is it important, but it has great influence. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, now we put bits in the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, and we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great, they are driven by strong winds and still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So he gives these two illustrations to, to demonstrate the far-reaching impact, the influence of the tongue. 
says, and includes himself. He says, you know, we, we put bits in the horse's mouth. He's, he's using a, a universal example that we all can readily understand. Horses have been domesticated for thousands of years, and we put a very small bit, very small piece of, of metal or, or wood in, into a, a horse's mouth, and we can control his entire body. They obey us, and that's the purpose of the bit. You have to apply control to the right place. My sister was a horse trainer for many years, and I watched as she would take different horses, depending on their age and how level, uh, whatever level they had been previously trained, and, and she, would, she would adjust the bits. There's different bits that she would use depending on how much control that she needed, depending on what type of horse. She would just change those bits. You see, the bit in a horse's mouth, it controls that large animal. And just James's point, that this little bitty thing makes this large animal go wherever you want it to go. Believers, we must bridle our tongues if you're to be useful to the Lord. And then he says another example here. He says, look at these, look at these great ships. And you can't really see the contrast in the, in the English, but he, he says there's a great ship and a small rudder. He's showing that contrast again of, of large and small. You think about the ship in Acts 27 that, that Paul was shipwrecked on. It says that ship carried 276 passengers. It was also loaded with grain. It was a massive ship and it's steered by a large, sorry, a small rudder. Even these ships today, we, we go by the port and you, you drive by and my son loves to look at the container ships and you, you imagine how big those ships are. As you get closer and closer, you realize, realize how large they really are. And you think about those ships and those massive ships are controlled by a small rudder. James drawing that contrast of, of how important it is to maintain control over that rudder And he says those ships are directed by strong winds. Our ships don't have a will of their own. They're blown by the wind and without the rudder, the wind, and without control, the wind would shipwreck, destroy that ship. And he says it goes wherever the pilot wants to. The pilot is the person who guides it straight. He controls the rudder, he directs the ship. But James also says, look, he gives those examples. He says, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. And so he draws that contrast and says, look, just like the bit to the horse, just like the the rudder to the ship, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it, it boasts of great things. You the small tongue, large boast, right? We, we've all guilty at times of big talk, right? One thing that, that we all naturally love to do is talk about ourselves, right? You can, you can usually see what people like. If you get them in a conversation, they'll eventually come around to something they, they really enjoy, they really like, and they'll talk about themselves, The tongue boasts confidently of its exploits. You see, brethren, like bits for horses and rudders for ships, the small tongue directs our entire body. The small tongue boasts. 
It shows the, shows the self-centeredness of our own hearts, the pride that still exists. And the tongue also leaves a result behind. Either it leaves a, a wake of blessing or it leaves a wake of destruction. Brethren, we should desire to speak with encouraging words, words that edify, comfort, that bless. So the question is, just, does your speech, does it promote truth, love? Is it pure? Does it promote holiness and goodness? This little tongue controls the direction of your life, demonstrates what's in your heart. Brethren, you must, in the power of the Spirit, master it. Read John MacArthur, he had a great phrase. He said, as Christians, we will master our tongues and we must master our tongues. We will in the sense that if we're truly Christians, if we truly have saving faith, then we will have self-controlled lives. But there's effort involved. We must have control over our tongue. It will be part of our lives, but we must put effort into it, controlling what we say. But James not only says that it's to have great, far-reaching influence and impact, he said it has an incendiary nature. Look in verse 5, the second part of that verse. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue sets Among our members is that which defiles the whole body and is set on fire by the course of your life and is set on fire by hell. He says, see, behold, a great forest can be completely destroyed by a very small flame. An uncontrolled small fire will burn and do much damage. One thing about being here in South Australia versus being in Southern California is they both have the same issue, and that's fires that break out because of the dryness of the summer. I remember when I first moved to California. I hadn't been there but about a year, and where I come from in the south, we get a lot more rain, so we don't have, these, we don't have massive wildfires. There's plenty of water, plenty of rain. You have occasional fields that burn, but nothing, nothing like you experience here in Australia or in Southern California. And I'd been there a year, my wife and we looked up in the, in the sky in the distance, and the, the sky was turning black. And it blotted out the sun, and then ash started to fall like rain, and it was a new experience for us. So we, we got on the, turned on the radio and, and got on the internet trying to figure out what was going on, and we realized there was, a, there was a fire in the next valley over from us. And this fire ended up burning for days and days, and it burned about... 38,000 acres. It destroyed 63 structures and 25 homes. Three civilians and two firefighters were hurt in this fire. Well, they investigated and they traced this fire back to one small boy playing with matches. You see, one little fire, one little spark can do untold damage. It all started from a single match. And James says, that's the tongue. He said, that's the nature of the tongue. The tongue is a fire. One small word can can destroy somebody. 
Think about how we speak to our kids. With one word, I could crush my kids' spirits. And with one word, I could, I could greatly encourage them and bless them. The tongue is a fire. It, it destroys the body of Christ if we're not careful. Gossip and slander is, is destroying to the body, detrimental to the body. Critical nature of people, just criticizing for no reason. We used to have a rule in the, my meetings with my leadership team where I previously worked that, that we could bring all our issues up in the, in the leadership meeting and those were fine and I would write those issues down and then, then I would ask the group, okay, now what? What are we going to do about them? Right? Just bringing an issue up about somebody or bringing an issue up about something that needs to get done does nothing. I just to say, look, we're just gossiping. If we, if we don't have a plan to, to do something about it. Brother, if somebody's hurt you or sinned against you, it's your responsibility to go to them. That's the biblical mandate. Right? Overly critical heart, overly critical speech, excuse me, really, uh, points to an overly critical heart in your life. I think one thing to remember too when it comes to speech and we, when, we, when we see things in other people, we naturally think we know what's best. How often have we said, oh, if they would only do this, they would be in such better shape. But I, I learned very quickly in my own life that the reality, we only really get to see what people show us, people tell us. You don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know what's behind the closed doors. Right, what they're struggling with, why they made the decisions they've made. And the tongue is a fire. And, and by you speaking against that person or gossiping or, or slandering a person behind their back or being overly critical, you can light a fire that can destroy your relationship and destroy the relationships in the body of Christ. And that's James's point. And he said it's a fire and, and he keeps going and he describes it. He says it's a, a world of iniquity. The tongue's nature is dark and sinful. He said he also has a, a unique place among the members of our body in that the tongue can defile our bodies. The tongue has a tremendous influence for evil. Think about it, the tongue can give utterance to every evil thought and it can describe every evil deed. James says it it defiles, it's a a progressive moral impact upon the body. It's a a corrupting influence. It spreads out. It doesn't just corrupt you, it isn't your heart spewing forth, you're influencing others. You have a critical heart and and you're speaking to someone else about somebody else and you're gossiping and, and you turn them against that person. Slander, gossip, it spreads like mold in a piece of bread. It starts with one small spot and it spreads throughout the loaf. And then what do you do? You throw the whole thing away because it's destroyed. And then James actually gives us the source of the tongue's evil. He says that the tongue is set on fire, verse 6, by hell. The word hell there is, is Gehenna. And it's a, it's a Greek transliteration of the Valley of Hinnom near Jerusalem. And in those days, the, the fires in that valley were kept burning day and night. It was a refuge pit. For you see, that valley, they originally, 
And even Israel was guilty of this. They, they would sacrifice children and in that valley. The abominable practice was, was stopped by King Josiah, and you can read in Kings of this. But that, that valley was considered so defiled and so polluted that they, they used it from that point on to, to, to throw refuge and rubbish and dead carcasses of, of sacrificial animals and even criminals. And Jesus actually, when describing that valley, He said it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He uses that valley as a, a picture of the lake of fire, of hell, of the burning, because the burning would never stop. Well, James is using that word, that, that Jesus says that, that hell, that lake of fire, is reserved for Satan and his demons. And, and James uses the word here as a synonym for demonic activity. Satan opposes God in everything. Satan is the, is the ruler of this age, the God of this world, and, and this world system is bent towards opposing God and His works and His will. Opposing the church. Fighting the gospel. That's, that's Satan and, and the demon's desire. It's a desire straight out of hell. And James says, look, that's the tongue. When, when the tongue, and as a believer, if you spread gossip and strife and evil, then you're, you're doing Satan's will. The words are straight from hell. It's a vivid picture, the destructive nature of the tongue. Remember, sin separates and sin destroys. It has since the beginning. The tongue can be a tool of Satan or it can be a tool for the Lord. And the question is, which are you going to use it for? Are you going to be controlled in your speech? We can influence others for good or evil. James continues and he says, not only is the tongue an influence, but there's an intractability to the tongue. Look in verse 7, For every species of beast and birds and creatures and reptiles of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no man, verse 8, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. James says every kind. The ancient world took great pride in the fact that they could tame these wonderful beasts. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, they could, they could tame all of these things. James says that not that every example of every species has been tamed, but he means those categories. Steve has fish, tropical fish in a fish tank. Many of you have, have dogs and cats, birds, turtles. Right? You have all sorts of animals that, that you've tamed in your home. I, I've been to SeaWorld in Florida, and I've seen orcas, killer whales do, do impressive tricks. Dolphins do amazing things. We see all these things. You see, man has the ability to tame these animals, but James has that caveat. And he says, look, all these things have been tamed and been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It's enabled. They're, 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 literally, the word is that they don't have the power. You're not able. We got a word from, we got a word, uh, Dynamite from this Greek word, dunamis. You don't have the ability, the power to tame the tongue. 
It takes a work of God regenerating the heart and, and the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to, to practice a, a controlled life, a controlled speech. A natural man is not able. I read an interesting word from one of the commentators. He says, because of the fall, man has lost dominion over himself. No one is able. And then he says, the tongue is a restless evil and is full of deadly poison. He's picturing an animal, an animal caged, pacing back and forth, restlessly waiting to get out of the cage that you have it in but behind your teeth. It's a restless evil. It's unstable. It's fickle. It's inconsistent. You can't trust it. Don't let that animal out of his cage, unguarded and uncontrolled. That's James's point. He said it's a poison. If it gets out, it bites and it stings and it kills and destroys. You wouldn't just let kids play with a black widow or a red-backed spider on the floor, would you? A poisonous stake. Why are you letting your tongue just go forth without any control? One of the commentators I read pointed out that the first sin of Adam after the fall, after he had become a sinner, is he blamed God for giving him Eve. Right? He blamed God. He said, you gave me this woman. He slandered indirectly God's character and God's nature. The first sin was a sin of the tongue. Brethren, the, the tongue is intractable. But James continues. And he says, look, the tongue is also inconsistent. He said, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come forth both, what? Blessings and cursing. Oh, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. This is James. His, his, his pastor's heart is pouring forth as he's, he's confronting these believers, as he's, as he's challenging you to be consistent with your tongue. He said, we bless God. It's the, it's the highest form of use that we could have for our tongues. We praise God. It's religious activity. The word there for, for bless is eulogize. When you go to a funeral, what are you doing? You're, you're speaking well of someone. You're giving a, a blessing upon someone. We eulogize God. We, we bless Him. We, we praise Him for His works, His name, His acts. James says we, He's our Lord. Shows His sovereignty and His authority. We bless our Father. It shows His, His compassion, His love for us as His children. But at the same time, while we are blessing God, we leave church, we leave our prayer time and our quiet times, and then we go and we curse men. The word literally means calling down curses. And you think about it, if you're, if you're cursing others, right? You're, you're bringing them low with your words, then you must think pretty highly of yourself. It's from a position of superiority, that you, that you curse others. You, you shower them with uncomplimentary marks. It also can be an attitude of, of anger as you, as you demonstrate your temper. 
but ultimately it comes from a lack of self-control. And James says, look, we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. Every person has an inherent dignity. Every person is created in God's image. Now, that image has been marred by sin, but everyone has inherent worth as a creature created in God's image. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Man is not an animal. That's why we value all human life, even life in the womb. I see at times more respect paid and more concern about dogs and cats that are mistreated than God's children who are mistreated. And only mankind, men and women, are eternal. The things of this world won't last. In fact, there's going to be a a new heavens and a new earth. So yes, I'm sorry, all all dogs do not go to heaven. You see, man has a conscience a will. He can reason. He has the ability to know God and serve Him and to be conformed to His likeness. And this is what James's point is. To curse man or woman is to curse God who made them. Right? All sin is first sin against God. If you say you love God, then that love should be demonstrated in how you treat God others. My mother taught me a long time ago that if you can't say something nice about somebody, then don't say what? Say nothing at all. It's biblical. And James says, look, the same mouth, verse 10, he's saying the same mouth. It's not like you have two mouths, one blesses and one curses. The the same mouth come both these things. And then he says, brethren, these things ought not to be this way. It's a gentle rebuke, but it's still a rebuke. And he adds, my brethren, he shows his love. And the word ought is is there's no right for this to exist. It's hypocritical. It's inconsistent in your life. James condemns this duplicious speech. It's hypocritical to, to praise God on Sunday and speak like a sailor the rest of the week. How do you know someone's profession is real? Well, you you look at what they say, how they act. It's easy, by the way, to speak good about those that we like, that are our friends. What about our enemies? What about those in the government when we disagree with their policies? There's an old adage as well that if you, you don't say something behind a person's back that you wouldn't say to their face. If you're saying something critical, slanderous, gossip, something of of evil intent behind somebody's back, it's sin. Straight Straight and simple. And I'd also add as well that each one of us will give account for every word that we've spoken. James continues, and he he wants you to understand this inconsistency. So he gives a couple examples from nature, and he says... Verse 11, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? 
Can you go to a, a stream up in the, the mountains and, and oh, it's a wonderful stream and, and you go to drink it one minute. Oh, it's a beautiful fresh water. And you tell your wife, oh, it's beautiful fresh water. Take a sip. And she gets down and she's like, oh, it's salty. What are you talking about? Right? The stream is consistent. You turn on the tap. It's not salty one minute and, and fresh the next. James says, can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Can a vine produce figs? He, he's asking these questions rhetorically. And the answer is, is no. That's absurd. Nature is consistent with itself. See, James is calling for consistency. He says at the very end, can a salt water produce fresh? Some of you have been to Israel, you know that the Dead Sea is extremely salty. You can imagine James thinking about that water, that, that big, huge water source and being so salty and said, oh, can you, can you go down to the, to the Dead Sea? Can you, can you go down and drink some fresh water? No, it's inconsistent. Look, brethren, James says a truly redeemed heart. A person with living faith, a genuine doer of the word is a, a person who's born again, a true Christian, all of these things, will not continually and habitually produce false, bitter, harmful speech. Nature is consistent and constant, and you should be too. That's James's point there. The brethren, James has challenged you to show your faith. Demonstrate your love for the Lord and how you treat others in what you say. He's calling for consistent, controlled speech. With our tongues, we can do much good. And with our tongue, we can do much evil. Seek to bridle your tongue. Control it. And don't let yourself, your life, be dominated by your speech and, and then the consequences that come from that. If you're so busy putting out fires, how can you be use of any use to God? Think about what you want to say before you say it. I have an adage for a lot of emails. If I read an email from somebody and it, and it gets me riled up, I have a 24-hour rule. I wait for 24 hours to respond. Because I, I learned a hard lesson when I was younger that I responded quickly in, in, in full emotion. And I regretted it. Are you careful with what you say? Is it helpful when you say something to somebody? Is it, is it profitable for them? Is it good? In Ephesians 4, 29, when in our dealings with believers, Paul says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up or for edifying, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Is your, is your speech full of grace? And for unbelievers in Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, Let your speech... Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, right? What's the constant? Grace, right? Grace is undeserved favor. Are you speaking towards others in a way that shows love and grace, whether they deserve it or not? That's grace. 
Brethren, demonstrate your faith in your self-control. Discipline yourself for godliness by restraining your tongue. God's going to help you. God will give you strength to resist speaking evil and speaking good. Remember, God has called you to love others, and your speech should demonstrate that in your life. Be consistent. Be obedient. Have a speech that's full of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this challenge challenge about our speech. Father, we're all guilty of speaking words that are hurtful, of sinning against others. Forgive us. Help us to commit anew to to speaking to others with speech that is full of grace. Lord, help us to demonstrate our faith towards others, our, our faith, excuse me, towards you and our faith in how we treat others. Lord, help us to demonstrate our love for you and our love for others and what we say and the tone of what we say. It, Father, we just thank you again for your word and the challenge that we've heard today. Help us to live consistent lives, controlled lives, Mature our faith. Make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.